All right, we'll get started. The, uh, all right, now, I, I did play the song because um, Kenneth Bailey mentions it in the chapter, which got me thinking a lot about how much, like, our, what we grew up on, our children's songs, really influences even our adult piety. And uh, not that we were going to spend the time talking about that, but I thought that was real important for us as we like read this parable together that we don't kind of revert back to childhood. While at the same time, we have to read the parable like a child insofar as we're coming at, you know, like for the first time. So, uh, the wise men built his house on the rock and Arky, Arky are two examples of destruction set to playful music. Arky, Arky, you know... Um, the animals, the animals, they come and <laughs> Yeah, we, uh, you know, most of the time because of the rainbow. And oftentimes when we got uh, like children's Bibles for our kids, you know, they would always include Noah's Ark, but it, would, it was always like a fun story. But if you really read this, I mean, it's a, it's a tragic story. It's, there's a lot of death, death and destruction. So, you know, yeah, with such a foundation, pun intended, it is, for those who've read the parable, that, is, is it any wonder that our, our perception of this parable is a bit trite? So, um, oh, so we got, I, got, I got a uh, YouTube video that I am going to kind of... It is Canada's first... Oh, I'll make it big years. An entire town in southeastern Quebec is being washed away. You don't really need to know. There's a town in, in Quebec. It's being washed away. First of all, I never even heard of this in the United States, which is kind of interesting. Um, they're going to show you, there's going to show you a picture here real quick. That's his his grandmother's house. We're talking about 1,500 cubic meters of water per second. It's the equivalent of the water volume of Niagara Falls. Sylvain's grandmother and six. Well, anyways, I don't think we need to show it anymore. But guess what? That house. But guess what about that house? It stood. And what was interesting is the woman in. uh, I'm not going to fast forward it here, but the whole point is that she actually says this house stood because it had a good, yeah, strong foundation. (laughs) Now, why was I, I was actually looking on YouTube for a picture from Wisconsin, um, by Wisconsin Dells, uh, not Lake Dullivan. Well, It was? Okay, never mind. It was. Where uh, the dam broke, and the lake literally emptied. And when it emptied, it like was taking houses, just like whole pieces, of, like just, just down the river. And then I happened to fall upon this video, and I thought, hey, this, this works out great. <laughs> so, yeah, this, this uh, grandmother's house, like, in, and they made a, the house became a museum, like a memorial to remember 
the uh, the event itself. I mean, there's a pretty extraordinary picture here. Let's see here if I can find it though. It's after. That's the picture. That's the house. It's just sitting there, and all the rest of it is just you know washed away. So that's kind of fun. So this is this is the image I think we should probably have in our mind when we think about this parable. Not the the wise men and the water, you know, the the song that we were listening to before. I think this image is probably more helpful for us because it raises the stakes of what Jesus is talking about. This is not something that you just kind of joke around about. This is kind of a big deal. So, anyways, like nobody in this town is joking about the flood that happened when this, uh, whatever, two years ago, whenever this happened. Okay, but before we get to that, um, I thought we'd read the Bible with Kenneth Bailey, which he encourages us to not read the Bible like yourself, which is always a tough, tough thing to do, because you are only you. So part of reading the Bible is uh, to kind of control yourself. So we have uh, several backgrounds that it brings up. First of all is the cultural background, and this is something that I found very interesting. You know, when we read about building a house, we, you know, we have certain perceptions of what that means, and for most of us, especially here in the western suburbs, we see old houses being torn down, like in uh, October, and then by December there's a family moved in and everything is hunky-dory. They're, they're celebrating Christmas. Um, well, that's, that's kind of, I know it's so hard to build a house, but it pales in comparison to, you know, what happens in the first century. And so even if you had a lot of money, building houses always had to be done at specific times and in specific ways. So, so you always built in the summertime because it wasn't the rainy season. And you always had to build on the rock rather than the hard ground, which was for, for those at that time, it was very hard to get down to the rock because you had hard clay over the rock. And the hard clay in the summertime, though, felt like rock. So, you know, if you're thinking, why do I need to go all the way down to the rock? Why do I need to spend all this time getting down to the rock when the heart is hard as a rock? It's because in the rainy season, when the rain comes, or like in the parable itself, a river would to flood, that clay would turn into mud, and mud moves, and lo and behold, so does your house move with it. So the reality of this parable in terms of like a cultural background is more along the lines of this picture for people. Like, this is a very hard thing to do. It's very time-consuming. And the reality is, is that if you actually don't build on the rock, you don't have a good foundation, your house will be swept away. That's, that's, not like, that's like a given, in a sense. It's not like maybe, you know, it's not like your old furnace... Maybe I can get one more year out of it this winter time. <laughs> it might happen. No, it, this will happen because the rains come and uh, things will be washed away. Now, the next thing that Kenneth Bailey brings up is the biblical background. I forgot we should actually read this. So uh, Luke chapter 6, if you haven't turned to it, we read it in our prayer service, but... Um, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and, and not do what I tell you? Oh, yeah. 
Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Sorry. Just in case for those who did not read it, this is the parable. Luke chapter 6, verse 46 through 49. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what it's like, what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without, without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Um, that last verse is very important, too, because that, there's images from uh, Lake Delvin when the water broke out. You have these large, you know, 35, 4,000 square foot homes. It was like in a half an hour. It was extraordinary. Like half an hour, the whole lake just emptied. I mean, it was. So immediately it fell in that last verse of the parable. I mean, that, that was extraordinary to see these images where dam breaks in, in, less, in less time than watching you know, a sitcom. These houses are just completely gone. For all the time and effort that was put into building these, it just took less than 30 minutes to completely destroy them. Okay, so that's it. Now, the biblical background. Um, Isaiah 28, 14 through 18, you are welcome to look at that. But the point in Isaiah 28, 14 through 18 is that Isaiah is making this prophecy that there will be a foundation laid in Zion that will uh, not be able to be moved. Now, in the time of Isaiah, what is happening with Israel? Well, unfortunately, Israel made an alliance with Egypt so that the Assyrians from the north couldn't come down and take them, destroy them, take them over. They were thinking, hey, if the, Egypts, the Egyptians are, uh, have our back, then those Assyrians won't you know, come in on us. And, but God said, don't do that. I will protect you. I'll take care of you. Of course, they didn't trust him. And so Isaiah says, okay, your house will be ruined. However, there is a foundation that will not be ruined. So, the listeners in this parable have this this perception in the background. Now, within these uh, biblical interpretation, you have a dogmatic background where the Qumran community, for those who don't know what the Qumran community, it was a a, a, a kind of a zealous community that left Jerusalem to kind of start the new Israel. Um, Part of them was the Essenes. Uh, some people might know what that is. But they were super righteous. They were really serious. And they believed that the foundation was, in fact, 12 men and three priests who knew the law fully or completely, what God had prescribed in the Old Testament. Then there's another dogmatic background going on, and this was probably most common across Israel, that the foundation was, in fact, not, not 15 men, but in the temple itself. And Kenneth Bailey shows how there's this stone, there was a stone that was just slightly a little higher from the first temple, and that was the foundation that was never moved 
from the old time, from uh, when Solomon built the temple. Maybe I should slow down here. Solomon built the temple. Then you have the Assyrians and the Persians and all these people taking over Israel. And some of them are taken to Babylon. That's where Daniel and the lion's den happens and, you know, the, the fiery furnace and all that. Well, there comes a point in time, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, um, where they all come back to Israel and they build the, new, the second temple or they begin uh, building it. It's not really until Herod's time where it's kind of fully finished, but that is where most people at Jesus' time, understood the foundation happening. Um, inside the most holy place, where the Holy of Holies were, where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now, Jesus' point, though, is very interesting, is that Jesus is saying that he is, in fact, the foundation of the rock. And Kenneth Bailey makes it the word being, being the most important, but then he brings up the spirit, so it's word and presence. So as Jesus says, we read the Gospel of Luke, and we come to this parable in Luke chapter 6, we have a frame of mind now that will be fully kind of put together uh, at, at the final ascension of Jesus. But Jesus says most explicitly in Luke chapter 21, verse 33, that his words will never pass away. So it is his word that will remain forever. And you see that embodied in Luke chapter 9, 23 through 27, and Luke chapter 8, verse 21, where you have this theology of the word that is, is uh, foundational. It's what holds things together. Now, if you take a look kind of thematically or literally within the Gospel of Luke, the word is living, which begins with the Annunciation. So you have the angel Gabriel, word of God, spoken to Mary, and then that actually it flows from Mary, goes to Elizabeth, John the Baptist, then the people of Israel through the John the Baptist, and then obviously then it gets, then Jesus kind of takes over the whole nine yards. And then, I don't know if you know this, but the Acts of the Apostles is Luke chapter, or Luke part two. So you have Angel Gabriel, Mary, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, Jesus, and then the Acts of the Apostles, or the life of the church. So you have this word that is living, not, I'll get to this later, not in the abstract. It's not just a word, but it's always in people. It's always alive in a a person. Which is very important, because there's no mention of the Bible in the Bible, in a sense. It's kind of funny. I, I shouldn't say that. In, in the Gospel of Luke. So the word, although Kenneth Bailey and most of the church will say uh, readers, primarily, it's listener. Because the word is being shared through a person. But that might be a false antithesis between spoken word and the written word. But. Okay, then, along with that, then, becomes the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's Luke chapter 3, verse 16. So you have this Holy Spirit um, speaking to Mary, obviously creating Jesus in her, and then that word shared through Jesus. 
Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John the Baptist says, I baptize with you wa with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, why? The Holy Spirit gives Jesus. Thus, that which he does in the Spirit, and Luke is really, uh, Luke is, has a, this is a nice thing in Luke, where Jesus does things in the Spirit, or filled with the Holy Spirit, he does these things. Um, that which he does in the Spirit is then given, given for those who receive the Spirit. So hopefully you're noticing a pattern. The Word is always in a person. That Word that gives the Holy Spirit has a certain life that's lived. So that, that person receives that Word, and that person lives a life according to that same Word that's given. And that's all by the power of the Holy Spirit. So now, this comes to the parable. Both word and spirit create a new temple in Jesus. So Jesus is the embodiment, is the word, and houses the Holy Spirit. Now, Mary, following, so Mary's big deal in Luke, right? Luke chapter 1, that's where we get all the stories about Mary, except for the wedding of Cana. Um, so Mary is the first disciple in Luke, but all other disciples kind of follow the same pattern as Mary. This is very important, though. Disciples as Jesus wants disciples. Which then goes to the parable. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them. Mary hears the word and does the word. Let it be unto me as you, according to your word. So, you get that played out then in, in Paul, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians three sixteen six 6 and 9 where it says that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's word is spoken or heard, resides, the Holy Spirit resides in the person, and then that person is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. So, okay, so what does all that mean? That's all like going on in the background of this parable, which we go back to the, the beginning of our song, Sometimes, somehow the song doesn't really capture all that going on, does it? It's not that the song is, is, is bad. It's just that we can't, we can't stop learning after we, yeah, you know. So anyway, so that's why we've got to keep learning. So what does all this mean then is that the, uh, the Qumran community, the dogmatic uh, interpretations of the Qumran and the Second Temple people are kind of half right. Qumran put the foundation in people, flesh and blood. And the second temple people put the foundation in the temple itself. But Jesus is saying, it's me, flesh and body person and temple. I'm, I'm, I'm all that. So, and when we say him, then we need to think concretely, which we'll talk about in a minute, is that it's not an abstract presence, it's a living presence. It's a real person, flesh and blood, you can touch, you can see, you can relate to, and then subsequently you can live like. So what Jesus is going on here, and this is everyone, we'll figure out who he's talking to in a second, but everyone who's listening is being reoriented. So everybody who thought that the foundation or life was in the rules, which is kind of a not a fair way of talking about the law in the Old Testament, or 
in this building called the temple, they all have to be reoriented towards, towards Jesus. And not only that then, so Jesus takes this dogmatic background, biblical background, and cultural background, but all that has to be reoriented, including how you read scripture. And I think that's probably one of the most profound things for the, probably the first listeners. Hey, that's not what the Bible says. And Jesus says, well, yeah, that's exactly what it says. Jan. Right. 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 Yeah, except for the Qumran people. The Qumran were the zealots. They would be like the, yeah, the Uber. Yeah, well, because what would uh, be one of their, well, hmm. Bible trivia time. One of the big complaints about them was King Herod himself. He wasn't really a a full-blooded Jew. He was uh, uh, from Idia. He's a, yeah, boy, that's not, how do I pronounce that? I, yeah, Edomite. I-D-U, anyways, there we go, thank you. (laughs) Holly, yes, Holly always helps me when I read the Bible at nighttime with our children. That's right. Right, so now, so the, again, this, uh, well, the picture here. This is why that picture is very helpful for us to understand what's going on in this parable. You have people who have given their life to this cause, to this faith, and they are sincerely believing that they understand what God has said. And at a certain level, they're kind of right. But Jesus says, but not all the way right. So you can imagine kind of the storm that Jesus creates by articulating what he is articulating. Um, which, you know, I was going to make a point about this, but the whole point is this sermon on the plain or the sermon on the flatlands, the parable comes at the end. So Jesus is really kind of letting us finish with this image. And that's very important going forward because there will be a storm that hits you well, of course, because you have an entire culture who's going to come down on you and say, you're crazy. This is wrong. This is actually against what God says. So it's not to be taken lightly. And in order to withstand that kind of storm, you must have a firm foundation. So the, uh, so but the thing is, though, is Jesus can't just kick up kick it up a notch of the same old, same old. He's reorienting, he's changing things. So he's not going to tell everybody, follow the rules a little bit closer, a little bit harder. He's not talking about rules, but he's talking about a living person. Holly. What if, what if it's related to something that's real? Yeah, well, in, uh, in, in John chapter, well, it depends on wh- which gospel you use. John chapter 2 has Jesus saying that in the beginning of the gospel. The other... Um, Gospels have Jesus talking to the Pharisees about the temple when he enters into Jerusalem after the uh, uh, Palm Sunday. After, yeah. So uh, where John says, this is my whole orientation about life, 
the other gospel says this is the final nail in the coffin. He's a goner now. There's no turning back. They're going to try to destroy him. Because he's threatened to destroy their, their... That would be like going to the White House, right, saying, I this thing will be destroyed. Most people will say, well, how do you know that? Because you, you will... Do, like, he's a terrorist, in a sense. So... Right. So, um, I guess in the United States, it wouldn't be just the White House. It would be the Supreme Court, the Capitol, and the White House. There you go. Balance of power. Well, they, they got it wrong, though, because they hit the Pentagon. But anyways, this is... Okay, so since the foundation is a living person, not a piece of stone, and not a book of rules... I, I left that out for some reason. Jesus' parable has a relational impact on those who are around him. This leads to the question, who is Jesus speaking to? All right, so it's not about kicking up a notch about having a better temple or having a better uh, book of of rules or uh, abstractions, I would say. But it is about this relational aspect with this living person. So this leads to the question, who is Jesus speaking to? Well, if we go back to earlier in the chapter verse 17 through 19, we'll find out that there are a lot of people, a great crowd of his disciples. So it's not just the 12, that's in verse 17. You have a great crowd of his disciples and then a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So everybody is there. So this is, that's, that's important. But within the everybody, there's different audiences. So everyone hears this, but now we have a, um, a dynamic happening. So, um, in verse 20 then, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, so you have, you have all these people around, but Jesus is speaking to his disciples specifically. The great crowd of disciples, not necessarily just the 12, but, you know, just this group of followers of Jesus. But at the same time, those who are on the outside are listening in. So that, that, that's very important. Okay. Um, so anyone who isn't present... I mean, who is present but isn't a disciple, this is what they would be getting into. So Jesus is presenting a true picture. It's not a secret thing. Also, for those who consider themselves disciples, this is for them, meaning this is what they are to be or to be living in. Okay. So there's a, 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 a element of discipleship and also evangelism going on at the same time. But how Jesus does evangelism is very different than a lot of times how we think we should do it. So coming, hearing, and doing is the paradigm. And that's what Jesus says now back to the parable in verse 47. But if we go back to verses 17 through 19, we see all kinds of people coming to Jesus, right? So we have Jesus, people who are coming to Jesus to hear him, to be healed, to be uh, healed of their diseases, that is, to be healed of the, these unclean spirits, um, and you know, people who just want to touch them. So we have all different reasons for people coming to Jesus, but what is Jesus' main point for those who come? And that would be 
the relationship, a discipleship relationship, a relationship that will be developed so that it can withstand the crazy storm that is about to occur on, on a disciple. So it's not a relationship of convenience. As Jesus is to them, so are they to Jesus. I switched my pronouns for some reason. Put another way, you love as you are loved. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's not a relationship of convenience. And that image of the parable should make that abundantly clear. Lord, Lord is an important term. I think uh, Kenneth Bailey brings this up. It's not a vending machine term where you petition the king when you need something. Rather, in this context, it's a relational term where you can call Jesus Lord. If you call Jesus Lord, then you are coming, hearing, and doing. And I like how Kenneth Bailey writes, in, in, or I think it was him, somebody did, an intolerable inconsistency for those who consider themselves disciples and don't live within this relationship. So that's for those on the inside, the great crowd. Jesus is really kicking it up a notch. This is, you're, you're part of my discipleship group? This is not convenient. However, this is where I think it's very interesting in terms of evangelization. For those on the outside, it's great relief because Jesus is presenting something that's worth living and dying for. So, so think about it this way, right? Metaphorically speaking. So as your life is tossed back and forth through the winds of the storms of life, um, Jesus is promising something that can withstand those. And for those who are in the midst of uncertainty, so... Like, I mean, think about, nobody was in the house during that storm that we saw. Grandmother escaped. Uh, they, the whole town, actually. It, it was ex- evacuated. Um, there, there was, I think, 10 people who died. But it was extraordinary, though, how many people didn't, I mean, cause, considering what happened. But um, anyways, but now looking back on it, the mother could have stayed home, right? I mean, because she had a house that was built on a very firm foundation. So Jesus is making this promise to those who are listening, to the disciples. This is what will happen. This is what will happen in your life. For those uh, who have had a relationship of convenience to Jesus, though, Jesus has been very helpful when I needed him, but for other times, I don't really hang out with Jesus. Um, That's the big challenge, then. Because Jesus is saying, there's more to this relationship than you just getting what you want. But for those who have actually who've searched all around life and have not found something like this, it's good news. It's perfect. But Jesus, in fact, though, sets it straight right away. I mean, he takes pains to be completely obvious to people. <laughs> so that goes back to you know our children's songs. Sometimes... When we stay stuck in our children's songs, we're believing a lie because life becomes a lot more stormy as we get older. Carol. Okay, good. So let's get now into the doctrine in abstract versus concrete. Now, I just throw these words out. What do I mean by abstract? 
Math is an abstraction. It's real. I believe in math. I mean, it's there. But it really only exists in the mind. You can't touch it. You can't show me a one. I think some of you have heard this from me before, but people will go like this to show me a one, but it's a finger. (laughs) Math is, is conceptual. It's abstract. I can't actually touch it. So literally, math is ultimately lived out in the mind. However, the benefits of math obviously are, are plentiful. I mean, we, we live, I mean, I see it all around. It's very concrete. How, so what do I mean by concrete? It's that which I can see, touch, taste, smell, hear. Yeah, if I wanted to put it more, even like more simply, that which I can give a big hug to. Now, we apply this to a relationship, and this is, very, this is funny. John Kleinick has a great story. He's talking to a bunch of seminarians. I'm sorry, not him. Uh, one of his professors, Her- Herman Sasa, uh, in one of his classes, he's teaching about something. I can't remember. I just remember this one part of the story that John Kleinick tells. And um, somebody is talking about marriage and relationship in the class, and Herman Sasa said... Um, all right, let's take a break. Uh, everybody come up with, like, what marriage is. So he went around the class, and marriage is, you know, love between two people, and all really nice definitions. And he said, okay, for those who are married, how many would be okay with just that? And they're all like, mm, no. <laughs> so you have marriage in the abstract and marriage in the concrete. Um, nobody's going to be okay with just a word about marriage or a definition about marriage. Because that marriage would then be lived kind of in the mind. But we all know about relationships, and it doesn't have to be marriage. I mean, it has to be about relationships, though. Relationships aren't lived in the mind, but they're lived with a hug. They're lived with taste. And not to get on a tangent, that's why I get off Facebook, because, yeah, anyways. (laughs) Of course, now, there's overlap between the abstract and concrete. That's why I mentioned about math. But uh, something that is abstract isn't going to be much fun for my senses. Marriage as a definition or something articulated is not as fun as married, you know, fully living, you know, relationally. I can't give a hug to my wife based on a sentence, but I can give a hug to my wife when I can actually hold her. So knowledge, though, uh, is kind of purely... Actually, it can be purely abstract. This is a terrible sentence. Um, <laughs> it can be mistaken as purely abstract. Um, you know, like what's, what senten- uh, senses does knowledge stimulate? On one hand, it doesn't stimulate any, but on the same side, it stimulates all of them. So when Jesus is saying coming, uh, hearing, listening, and then doing, we have this kind of simple progression now of realities. So the word that we talked about in the beginning, spoken by, you know, from God the Father through the angel at the Annunciation to Mary, goes to a living person and now has a life. So doing them is precisely living in concrete. Living Jesus' life, that which he lived in the Holy Spirit. Now for those, uh, Mark might be more helpful, I think, in this respect, but Luke has the same reality, is that Jesus' life in the Holy Spirit. Obviously, Jesus had the Holy Spirit when he was enunciated, when he was conceived. But the Holy Spirit comes down where on Jesus? In his baptism. 
when does your life with God begin? At baptism. So it's the time in between um, uh, baptism and then when does Jesus give up his Holy Spirit? On the cross, into your hands I commit, commit my spirit. Then that is the doing, Carol. If you want to get really precise, this is the doing. That life between baptism and the cross. So, if we read that, though, then we find out then life, in fact, will be very difficult. You will have a storm that will come crashing upon your house. So, But Jesus does a great job, because already in verse 40... Uh, there, that's, we get, that's verse 17 through 19 and verse 20. Oh, well, it's, 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 it's the same image now. You have the church, and you have everybody around the church. So you have the entire... Uh, this, okay, this is what my point in verse 17 was. I'll, I'll, yeah, uh, who was there? Everybody was there. So you have everybody from Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, and Sidon. Oh, so hang on. So Judea is the south. Jerusalem is like the holy city. That's like the... Religious leaders, the upper class, the politicians. the, And then Tyre and Sidon are all the way up here. So you have the north, south, and everybody that's influential. So you have everybody there. Now within everybody, though, you have the disciples and you have kind of the non-followers. So now in 2013, it's the, it, 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 conceivably it's the whole world. But you have these two rings, the church and everybody looking in. Which, yeah, which is, yeah. Well, I mean, you could say as hard, so I would say abstract and concrete, because concrete has always lived in the body. It's not, it's not just a word. Just a word. See, God's word is always, this is what I was talking about before. God's word is from the angel to Mary, person. Already, there's no abstract word in the Gospel of Luke. It's in a person. Now, obviously, in Mary, it's extremely concrete because Jesus is inside her as a little, little baby growing. Um, but that word, though, that presence of God through that word doesn't just stay in Mary, obviously, because when Mary goes to Elizabeth, what happens? She says, hello, and John the Baptist leaps, and whoa, okay, the Lord is here. Um, and then John the Baptist in the Gospel of Luke, though, is what? He's the one who says, there's one coming after me. Make straight, there's one coming. Because everyone's getting ready. And then obviously in Luke chapter 2, Jesus arrives in the Word. So the Word now is enfleshed. So the Word is always a, a body. It's always living in a person. So, um, so if you want to say head knowledge and heart knowledge, that's kind of, but they're both inside you. I mean, your head's in, well, I mean, hopefully your head's in but I mean, the idea is so. The idea is that there's an abstract reality, uh, which I think I wrote this. Yeah, okay. I, I find this often. This goes with uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans. You know, oftentimes we think, hey, if they just knew better, you of course would act better. Exactly. So, if you knew it, then why didn't you do it? Uh, or you know, or not do it. I mean, I, I, Isaac is a perfect example of this. I keep saying to this, all you have to do is not do it. 
You just have to not do something. <laughs> I mean, I, I, seriously, like, what is the hardest thing to do? Nothing. What is the easiest thing to do? Nothing. You know? So, um, so yeah, so Carol, that, this is what we're getting at is that uh, head knowledge, according to God's word, actually is, is body knowledge or living knowledge, bodily knowledge, I guess is the best way. That's why I like to use abstract and concrete because you can even know something in your heart and still not live it. You can feel it, but nothing changes. It might change in the moment. That's the role of kind of emotions. That's why I kind of heart, I, I like using heart too, but sometimes it gets a little confusing because our emotions actually doesn't lead to change. Right? I mean, we feel good for a little bit and then everything goes back. It's the typical summer Bible camp syndrome. We have a wonderful week at Bible camp. I'm ready to live for Jesus. And then three weeks later, you know, you're, nothing's changed. You sure felt it in your heart, though. So, um, yeah, if you knew it, then why didn't you do it? So this goes back then to building a house. Everybody in the time of Jesus knew how to build a house. Or, I mean, theoretically speaking, you didn't put it on the, you didn't put it on the ground. That would, that would be just kind of ridiculous. You had to count the cost of building a house. But that's how you did it. Because if you didn't do it, then your house would be swept away. So if this, if this scenario were to happen, somebody would come up to the guy and say, well, if you know how to build a house, then why, why didn't you do that? Well, because I was what? I mean, it comes fundamentally down to being lazy. Not, 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 not uh, misinformation. So Jesus, in the Gospels, takes pains to portray the reality of what it is to be a disciple. This is what it means. Even, so yeah, I think, uh, yeah, the struggle, the cost of being a disciple. If you, I mean, I think the most extreme is verse, uh, chapter 14. In fact, let's just turn to it. Well, first, I'm sorry, 640, though, this is within the Sermon on the Plain. So as we come to the parable, we should already know this because we're good listeners, right? Everyone's a good listener. Listening is easy. No one's disagreeing with me. Interesting. Listening is a skill. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So, Carol, that goes to your question. That's kind of what I described. What is the doing? Like your teacher. But in verse 14, verse 26, it, be, it comes really extreme. I mean, Jesus is very offensive here. Um, well, I have great crowds now. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, that is very stark terms. It's this way or the highway. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, echoing building a house, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to yeah, mock and laugh at him. If you knew how to do it, then why didn't you do it? What's wrong with you? This man began to build, and uh, I'm sorry, so uh, finished saying, hey, this man began to build a house, was not able to finish. What a joke. 
Or what king going out? Okay, uh, blah, 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 blah. All the way down. So, okay, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Yeah. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Anyways, it's, it's uh, extreme. Verse 14, I mean, chapter 14. Uh, so part of us say, well, does he, I mean, do we really have to? Do I really have to hate my mother and my father? Really? Is that what, Jesus can't mean that. Well, okay, so if he can't, then I'm not, I don't need to do that. So now all of a sudden, our building's starting to crumble. The stakes are high. Again, that image of the crazy storm being against the, the house is, is what we need to be. I mean, if you cut the corners on that foundation with that crazy storm happening, the house is gone. Can't cut the corners. So this relationship with Jesus, uh, there's a great cost, but at the same time, the relationship is, in fact, great. Um, Jesus has shown you the love to which you are to love. So a lot of us think about justification and how God has saved us, not by works, but by grace. We think, oh, taking it easy then. Christ did everything. I don't have to do anything. When it comes to our salvation, that is absolutely true. Jesus is the one who died on the cross. He is the di- he's the one who died for you. But why? Oh, so I can take it easy. I can just do whatever I want. I can cut corners. I don't really have to dig down to the foundation. No, that's, that's not true. That's just, well, first of all, that's not in the Bible. Uh, but on a, on a certain kind of relational aspect, we would never treat anybody that way. I mean, I mean, if someone had saved your life, how would you relate to that person? Just shallow, tried, kind of not really, not appreciate that person. Well, of course not. We would be, we would, we would think that person every single day. So, um, not only biblically speaking, but kind of just common sense. This is how we relate to people. But for some reason, because we, we believe and we know that Christ has saved us, somehow we, we think this life after salvation is kind of easy. But Jesus, in fact, says it's the exact, it is the opposite. So it takes, it takes a lot of time to make sure everyone knows this. So that when it comes time to build a relationship, people dig deep. Jesus takes a lot of time. He takes from Luke chapter 3 all the way to, well, all the way to the ascension to explain it. Um, After the resurrection, when Jesus meets the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they have no clue what happened. And he says, what's wrong with you people? And he opens the Bible or, I mean, in theory, I can't imagine him actually having one big Bible because um, that would be a huge scroll or a big fat book. Um, but he says, taking Moses, the prophets, all, every takes the Old Testament and says, they all were, this is about me. And then they come to the house. They say, stay with us because it's evening. 
and he breaks bread, and they recognize him finally. Goes to those two go to the rest of the, the apostles, and hey, all this is you know I can't believe this happened, and he showed us what, what the what life was really all about. And then Jesus shows up again and does the same thing to the apostles and says, this is what I'm all about. This is what life is when you live in relationship to me, and this is what God's word has said. Um, so even to the very end, he's still kind of showing them what this relationship is going to be. So, you know, without digging deep, your relationship will be built on something that isn't permanent. And when life storms, floods come along, they'll be swept away. That's kind of obvious. But again, it needs to be reiterated. Uh, if it's built on the rock, that is Jesus. As he's given to us in his entirety, then it is, it is permanent. You're not showing up just to have your, your rash healed or something. You're, you're, I don't know why I thought of that, but anyways, you're, just not, you're not having some kind of, you know, little, little, you know, you just need a little touch-up. just goes, bam, permanent. So how do you get to the rock? Obviously, hard work of coming, listening, and doing. Coming. Where do I go? I go to the place where Jesus promises to be. Word and sacrament. The church. Baptism. Breaching. The Lord's Supper. Absolution. When do I listen? Bible study. Breaching. Word. And then doing is living. Living Christian life. Um, Those all go together, though. Then when storms hit, there's a great relationship to depend upon. Um, you know, so what happens uh, when, when life hits you hard? Well, you turn to mom. Right? I mean, we all call mom when, when things go bad, uh, which is Holy Mother Church, which is a church. Your big brother, Jesus, pastor. Um, and then your friends, congregation. And I, I think if you've actually experienced this in your life, like you'll never, you'll never go back. Like, um, like I, I think, yeah. When life gets hard and the church is there and Jesus is there and your friends, your your Christian friends, your congregation is there, you're like, what? Why isn't this all about? Why isn't my life all about this already? And then it just becomes crystal clear. And I hope that's what St. John is. So, anyways, I got to go get our kids. So, let's pray. I don't, I'm, that's a good thing. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.